I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Immune-modulating drugs to treat severe autoimmune conditions are some of the priciest drugs in the pharmacy. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. A recent study shows that these biologic agents have an unexpected downside. They can trigger other autoimmune diseases such as psoriatic arthritis or hydrotinitis superativa. Drugs like Humira or Enbrel can cost between eight dollars and $12,000 a month. Even with good insurance, the co-pays can be daunting. Stopping these drugs requires medical supervision. So do common acid-suppressing medications like Prolisec or Nexium. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, the pros and cons of immune-modifying drugs. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, people who have caught COVID-19 may be at increased risk for cardiovascular complications in the future. That's the conclusion of a small autopsy study of patients who had contracted SARS-CoV-2. Most cardiologists blame heart disease on lipid factors, such as elevated LDL cholesterol. But there has been evidence that infections can trigger coronary artery disease leading to heart attacks. While most people associate the long-term consequences of COVID with shortness of breath, brain fog, or fatigue, the new study suggests that the virus causes blood vessel inflammation and leads to the development of arterial plaque. The researchers found that the virus homes in on foam cells that infiltrate arterial walls. The patients in the study already had cardiovascular disease, so these results won't generalize to young, healthy people. Nevertheless, COVID-19 appears to increase the risk for cardiovascular complications. Doctors treat sexually transmitted infections with antibiotics. One of the most common medications is a long-acting injected penicillin. Sadly, Bicillin-LA is in short supply. The National Coalition of STD Directors and other public health organizations are calling on the manufacturer, Pfizer, to ramp up supplies as soon as possible. Syphilis is spreading at alarming rates, so this shortage is especially worrisome. This is not the only antibiotic that has been in short supply lately. Amoxicillin for children's ear infections has also been scarce. When most people hear the phrase morning after pill, they think of birth control. The CDC has just proposed the phrase doxypep for a morning after antibiotic to prevent sexually transmitted infections. Doxypep stands for doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis. This broad-spectrum antibiotic can help prevent chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis infections when taken shortly after a sexual encounter. Scientists report that people who regularly drink dark tea appear to have better control of their blood pressure. The study included almost 2,000 Chinese adults between the ages of 20 and 80 years old. Of these, 436 had diabetes and 352 prediabetes. 
The other 1,135 had normal blood glucose. The researchers inquired how often people drank tea and what type of tea they drank. They also measured glucose in the urine, insulin resistance, and the glucose index along with glycemic status. People who drank tea every day had more glucose excretion in the urine and lower insulin resistance. They were also 15% less likely to have prediabetes and 28% less likely to develop type 2 diabetes. Green tea is popular in China, but the investigators found that dark tea offered the most metabolic protection. They believe that the bioactive compounds in dark tea resulting from the fermentation process can mimic sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors. This is the activity behind medicines like Jardiance. When people with sleep apnea stop breathing multiple times a night, it interferes with refreshing sleep. Doctors treat sleep apnea with continuous positive air pressure, a device that provides air to the patient while they sleep. A new study published in JAMA analyzed data from randomized controlled trials involving more than 4,000 volunteers. In comparing those assigned to CPAP and those without CPAP, there was no difference in the rate of major adverse cardiovascular events. However, when the scientists looked at adherence, they found that people who actually used their CPAP machines lowered their risk of a heart attack or stroke significantly. Data from the Nurses Health Study 2 shows that women who have trouble getting a good night's sleep are more likely to develop high blood pressure. Researchers collected data from 66,000 volunteers between 24 and 42 years of age. Those who slept less than seven or eight hours a night were more likely to get hypertension. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Some of the most successful and powerful medications doctors currently prescribe are called biologics. That means they're often made from living organisms. These very expensive pharmaceuticals are used to treat many different autoimmune conditions, from ulcerative colitis to psoriatic arthritis. A recent study published in Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology shows that people taking immune-modulating drugs for inflammatory bowel disease are at higher risk for also developing rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis. To help us understand the significance of the new research, we turn to Dr. Robin Chutkin. She's a faculty member at Georgetown University Hospital. She's also the founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness, an integrative gastroenterology practice located in Washington, D.C. Dr. Chutkin is the author of the Digestive Health books Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, The Bloat Cure, and The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out. It is such a pleasure to be back with you today. My favorite hosts cannot wait to dig in today. <laughs> oh, thank you. We love talking to you, Dr. Chutkin. And I guess the first question has to do with a category of medications called 
biologics. And there are quite a few different kinds, but I'm thinking about medications that have become incredibly successful. Drugs like Simsia, Humira, Remicade, Symponi, they're called IMIDs. Immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, that's what they treat. And we just like to get a sense of your perspective on these biologic drugs, these TNF blockers. This is one of my favorite topics to talk about for two reasons. Number one, in my medical practice, I have gone from being one of the area's largest prescribers of biologics to now the whole focus of my practice is helping people get off these drugs. And I'll talk about that transition. And because I was at the meeting in Amsterdam in 1998, when they were presenting data on one of the first biologics in common use that we now know as Remicade, the generic name is Infliximab. And at the time, at that meeting in 1998, it didn't even have a name. It was called CA2. But let's dial it back and start with a basic definition. So what is a biologic? A biologic refers to really any type of medical therapy that is made from a living organism. And that living organism can be a human, it can be an animal, commonly a rodent like mice, or it can even be a microscopic organism. And this is different from traditional non-biologic drugs, which are usually made in a lab via a chemical process without using part of a living thing. And even though, as you pointed out, Joe, their biologics are so many of them on the market, they seem to be everywhere. When I watch television, I am just incredulous at the amount of these drugs out there now. It seems like there's a new one every month. But the biologics have actually been around for a long time. Some of the early vaccines that were developed in the 1800s were technically biologics. And insulin, the drug that we use, one of the main drugs we use for diabetes, was one of the early biological therapies. But clearly, in the last 20 to 30 years, a number of biologics has exploded. And there's so many different types now. They treat so many different conditions. And... Of course, they all have different purposes, different targets. They all work a little bit differently, but they all have some, in my opinion, very worrisome potential side effects. Well, before we get to the side effects, what are some of the conditions that are being treated by these biologics? And you know, we're starting with the TNF blockers, the tissue necrosis factor blockers. You mentioned Remicade. Give us some sense of what they're doing to the immune system and why they'd be so helpful and why they've been so successful. Immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, what you referred to at the beginning as IMIDs, but what we often refer to as autoimmune diseases, or we sort of use those terms a little bit interchangeably, are very, very common. They affect somewhere around one in four Americans. So we're talking about a huge percentage of the population. And what's really interesting is that people often have more than one autoimmune disease. So you may have rheumatoid arthritis, but you also have psoriasis. You may have eczema, but you also have ulcerative colitis. And so we've described these diseases as sort of modern plagues. And you think about it, diabetes is an image. Parkinson's is an imid. Eczema is an imid. These immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, something is has gone wrong with the immune system. And what these diseases represent is an overactive immune response. Your immune system 
instead of recognizing that this is a part of your body or not a threat, it is creating an immune response to something. In the case of the two autoimmune diseases I treat, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, the body is creating an immune response to its own lining, to the gut bacteria in the gut, the, the normal flora. In the case of rheumatoid arthritis, it's reacting to the joints and destroying the joints. In the case of psoriasis, in this, it's the skin. With lupus, it's often the kidneys. So there are over a 100 different autoimmune diseases now, more and more every year. So something is clearly going wrong with our immune systems. And we don't really know exactly what it is, do we? We don't know exactly what it is, Terry, but we have a sense. And some of the background and, and some of the clues for why we have these autoimmune diseases has to do with something called the hygiene hypothesis. And I won't go, I love talking about this, but I'll use up the entire time. So I'm going to cut myself off and just say that this was work done by an epidemiologist in Britain around the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And it led to a publication of a very important scientific paper in the 1980s. And the crux of this whole sort of 20 years of research is that lack of exposure in early life to soil, to germs, to childhood diseases, et cetera, led to an increased risk of autoimmune diseases. So if our immune systems at a young age are not being trained adequately, it can lead to this dysregulation in later life where we sort of overreact to things that we should be tolerant to. And interestingly, the hygiene hypothesis, they found that people who are living in sort of less sanitized conditions where there's less sort of washing and we could extrapolate that and say processed food and so on are more likely to have these autoimmune diseases. And we still see that. If we look at a map of the world, we see that people in less developed countries where there's less sanitation, there's less processed food, there's less antibiotics, there's less sort of pharmaceuticals in general, tend to have much lower rates of autoimmune disease. And in the more developed parts of the world, like North America, Western Europe, we see the opposite. And so consequently, we have this this amazing figure of one in four people who have such an autoimmune disease, they're suffering, and their doctor may be prescribing one of these biologic drugs to calm their immune system down, to stop the damage. Now, I think we need to talk about our concerns. Yes. And I do want to preface this by saying that these drugs can be very effective. And it, it represents an incredible breakthrough in science that we have these drugs available. So I want to be very clear that as a practicing physician, I am thrilled that we have powerful drugs like this in our arsenal. But, you know, there's a but coming. There's a but coming. I want to second that because for people with really hard to treat autoimmune conditions, these drugs have been lifesavers. They have changed the course of the condition, whether it's psoriasis or whether it's ulcerative colitis. But let's hear the other side of the story. The other side of the story, Joe, is that these drugs are not being used as judiciously as they should be. So to take you back to that 1998 meeting in Amsterdam, the first biologic on the market for autoimmune 
inflammatory bowel disease at the time CA2, later named infliximab and known through its brand name Remicade, was the data was being presented. And this drug seemed like magic. And just to show like how little we knew about these drugs, we thought we just gave one dose and we were done or three doses. We didn't realize these drugs needed to be given over and over and, and often for a lifetime. And these drugs sort of melted away a lot of the inflammation. We saw the gold standard for treating colitis, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's is what we call mucosal healing. So it's not just that the patient feels better in terms of symptoms. It's that when we take our scopes and look inside the colon or the small bowel, those ulcers are healed. And we were seeing that. And it was like magic. However, at the time, we were really advocating for what we call step-up therapy, meaning you start with a basic drug that's probably a little less efficacious but has a better side effect profile. If that doesn't work, you step up to the next drug. Maybe works a little better, but maybe the side effects are a little worse. And you work your way up that staircase to the big guns, like the biologics, like the Remicades, that are very effective, but have all these problematic side effects, primarily related to infection and cancer. And we'll talk about why that is what they're doing to the immune system. Unfortunately, we saw a real shift, prompted, of course, by the pharmaceutical companies that are making a lot of money from these drugs. And I'm sure, Joe and Terry, you have some statistics on that. So we saw a shift where they really started promoting this idea of top-down therapy. So instead of step up and work your way up to a more aggressive drug, it's start with the most aggressive drug. And, you know, there is some data behind this for some diseases and some circumstances is the idea that you use a disease-modifying drug early before complications set in. But the problem with this kind of approach is you're also treating many, many people with a drug that's more aggressive than they probably need and a drug that has these problematic side effects. You're listening to Dr. Robin Chutkin, a gastroenterologist on the faculty at Georgetown University Hospital. She founded the Digestive Center for Wellness. Her most recent book is The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out. After the break, we'll learn more about the serious downsides to these immune-modifying drugs. Are the benefits worth the increased risk of infection or cancer? The middle of a pandemic might not be the best time to suppress your immune system. What advice does Dr. Chuckin offer her colleagues and patients on using the biologics safely? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, backed by 20 years of scientific research and the maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Cocoa Extract. Cocoa flavanols are among the most studied plant-based bioactives today and are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular and brain health for the long term, supporting a strong heart and better memory. Get 15% off your order of any Cocovia product by using the discount code PPOD15. Learn more at Cocovia. And remember that discount code is PPOD15. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. 
This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements, cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health made with proven concentrated flavanol extract. More information at cocovia.com. We're talking about the paradoxical effect of some immune-modulating drugs. These pricey medications have changed the treatment of many serious autoimmune conditions. Doctors prescribe them for rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, hydratinitis superativa, ulcerative colitis, and Crohn's disease. A new study has shown that they may have some unexpected side effects in addition to their benefits. With prices like $8,000 to $12,000 a month, even people with good insurance may find it difficult to afford the copay. But the most serious consideration may be the increased susceptibility to infections, cancer, and other autoimmune diseases. To help us better understand this boomerang effect, we are talking with Dr. Robin Chutkin. She is a gastroenterologist on the faculty at Georgetown University Hospital. She's the founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness, an integrative gastroenterology practice located in Washington, D.C. Her books include Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, The Bloat Cure, and The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside out. Dr. Chuckin, you've described how these fantastic but also extremely expensive medications are able to calm the immune system. That seems like a very, very precious ability, but it does come with some serious downsides. And you've mentioned infection and cancer. Please tell us about that. I'd love to do a quick immunology 101 because this is a principle, I have to admit, I didn't really grasp this principle well in medical school, probably because they made it too complicated. So let me simplify it in a way that I think people can, can really sort of understand what we're talking about. With the immune system, if you have an overreactive immune system or overactive immune system, it means you are reacting to normal parts of the body tissue and destroying them. Like we talked about with autoimmune diseases, you're reacting to your normal joints, you're reacting to your normal skin, to your normal gut lining. And that kind of overreaction is autoimmune disease. You can also be overreacting to things in the environment, like an insect bite or pollen. So we refer to that as seasonal allergies or people who are extremely allergic to bee or wasp stings. That's also a kind of overactive immune response. Now, an underactive immune response is also problematic because an underactive immune response can lead to cancer and infection. How does it do that? Well, infection is kind of obvious, right? If your immune system isn't active enough, it means that when a pathogen gets into your body, be that a bacteria, a viral organism, a fungal organism, et cetera, your body is not able to mount that immune response to get those cells, to make those cytokines, to fire away at that pathogen and protect yourself. So you are susceptible to all these different kinds of infections. But what about cancer? Well, our immune system is also our cancer surveillance system. 
it is part of the body's process that goes through as these cells are dividing and decides, okay, you, this cell here, you're not dividing properly. You're dividing in an abnormal way, and this is looking pre-malignant. And if you keep dividing like this, this is going to become cancer, so we're just going to get rid of you. So the immune system does, it does a lot of things, but two of the really important things it does is it fights infection and it surveys the body for cancer. It weeds out those older cells or those cells that are just not dividing properly and are looking a little bit worrisome. So you can start to see now that as we suppress that immune system to help treat these autoimmune diseases, to quiet the immune system down, if you quiet things down a little too much, you are now going to be at risk for cancer and infection. And that's why so many of these biologics have cancer and infection, in addition to a whole host of other things, but primarily these two things as potential side effects. Well, you know, whenever I watch one of those commercials, and as you've pointed out, those commercials are everywhere all the time. They always say, well, yeah, it might make you more susceptible to infection. Oh, if you've been someplace where there are fungal infections, let your doctor know. Oh, if you experience any symptoms, like if your thyroid starts to do something funny, uh, let your doctor know. And I don't think most people really take those warnings very seriously, but, but they are disconcerting, aren't they? They are real. And I'll tell you, we were one of the first centers to use infliximab, Remicade, and we had great successes, as we've discussed. But we also had some real problems. We had people develop cancer. We had people die from severe pneumonia. So these risks are real. And some of these drugs have a black box warning from the FDA. So even though on those television ads, they say it's so fast, you can barely catch it. It's like, you know, infection, heart disease, clot, death, uh, cancer. They say it super fast while they're showing people, you know, at the farm stand and on the roller coaster and seeming to have such a wonderful time. And that is true. These drugs, as you pointed out, Joe, they can be life-changing, they can be life-saving, but it is critically important for people to understand that these risks are real. And they're particularly real in people over 50. Why? Because as we age, our immune system tends to become less active as it is. So if you have an immune system that's naturally sort of waxing or waning, rather, waning, right? Wax is when it gets big, wane is when the moon gets smaller. So if your immune system is waning and naturally declining, and then on top of that, you're taking a drug that is suppressing your immune system or altering it, you could really be at risk. So the risks are really in everyone, but there are certain groups of people where the risk is even greater. It seems to me that uh, suppressing your immune system might be an especially bad idea if there is a pandemic infection like maybe COVID-19 uh, in the world. Absolutely. And we know that these pandemics are not sort of one and done, unfortunately. And I mean, if we look at viral infections, this is a shocking statistic. In the last 50 years, we have had over 30 novel viruses for which we have no cure. So, of course, we had SARS-CoV-2, but we also had hepatitis C, and we also had multiple. We had MERS. We've had multiple HIV. And even though over time with HIV, it's taken decades 
for us to get to the point where we have therapies that can control the disease, but we still don't have a cure for HIV any more than we have a, a cure for, we don't have a cure for the common cold caused by influenza. And so we are in an era where these pandemics are more likely to occur, not less. And so it's really critically important that we put these drugs in the context of a changing world where there are more infectious threats than ever. Well, we have been talking about infection, and that is super important. We have mentioned cancer. I think most people believe, and as I do, that that also is super important, and you want to be very careful about doing anything that's going to dramatically increase your risk for cancer. But I would like to talk about some new research suggesting that people who take one of these medications actually become more at risk for developing another of these immune-mediated diseases. Yeah, this was an incredible study. And, you know, Terry, I had seen this anecdotally. I had seen I have seen patients on biologics develop some of these very same immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, IMIDs, that they mention in this paper, like hydratinitis supportiva, which is a skin condition where you get uh, swollen lesions that are painful and usually filled with pus in the, in the groin, in the underarms, in some of those sort of more sweaty areas. I had seen that, and I remember one patient where we thought it was folliculitis. We thought it was infection, but it turned out to be hydradenitis. We have seen people develop psoriasis on these drugs or have worsening of one autoimmune disease or another. So this study that was hot off the press from this summer, and this is a Danish study, I believe, from University of Copenhagen, looked at a particular kind of biologic, tumor necrosis factor inhibitors, and these are this is a biologic I was talking about, infliximab. And they looked at these drugs in inflammatory bowel disease. So in people being treated with these anti-TNF drugs for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, is there an increased risk of immune-mediated inflammatory diseases? And again, this is counterintuitive. You would think, of course not, because this is a drug being used to treat these autoimmune diseases. And it turns out that if you thought, of course not, you would be absolutely wrong because this study showed that anti-TNF therapy was associated with an increased risk of rheumatoid arthritis, an increased risk of psoriasis, and an increased risk of hydradenitis supportiva in patients with Crohn's and colitis who are on the drug to treat their Crohn's and colitis. Even though these medications are also used to treat hydradenitis supportiva or psoriasis. Correct. And, you know, I, I just feel like I have to say this. I, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I, I just have to talk about what's going on in the scientific medical community. We know that studies that are supported by a pharmaceutical company are much more likely to show a positive outcome for the drug being studied. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to us. If you're funding a study and you're selling a drug, you want that study to show that the drug works, that it's effective, et cetera. In the last few months, there've been some really worrisome studies that show that the bias is much greater than, than we even realized. That, for example, in oncology studies, they will often say, they will count death 
amongst people taking the drug as a minor occurrence, or they will say the drug was well tolerated, even if people died. I don't think if you die, that's a sign that something is well tolerated. So I think those of us not doing the primary drug studies didn't realize the degree to which uh, we're sort of glazing over some of the problems. And so we really rely on the Europeans. We rely on the Scandinavians to do these large-scale studies. This is a study done actually in Denmark and in France. And I think it was about 18,000 patients in Denmark and about 90,000 in France patients with IBD. And when they combined it, it was a total of over 500,000 person years of follow-up. So when they combined these, you know, about 110,000 patients and how long they'd had disease for. And so we tend to not do these studies because a lot of our medical research is funded by the pharmaceutical industry. And they're not interested in funding a study that shows that their drug is causing problems. So we rely a lot on the Europeans and these large data banks of patients for a lot of this information. And this study was very interesting. And it also supports and validates smaller studies that we've seen over the years that have shown similar results and also the anecdotal experience we, that we've seen. Now, to be clear, most patients on a biologic will not develop another autoimmune disease. So this is the exception, not the norm. But this is, again, a, another sort of unexpected consequence. So we're already dealing with infection and heart disease and cancer and potential death. And now we have to worry about more autoimmune diseases. Well, you know, Dr. Chutkin, I characterize this as the boomerang effect because you think you're you're calming down the immune system so that your psoriasis symptoms so that your inflammatory bowel symptoms so that some of the other conditions that you've mentioned that are autoimmune in nature would be eliminated and you could go on about your life very happily you know rheumatoid arthritis can be an incapacitating disease and so now you can go hiking again so it all sounds fabulous. But then all of a sudden we hear that, wait a minute, now we're getting other autoimmune conditions. And as soon as I saw this this study from Denmark and France, the, this research, I immediately contacted the executives at the Food and Drug Administration. I said, have you guys seen this? Are we warning clinicians and patients about this potential boomerang effect? What did they say, Joe? Well, they, they didn't seem terribly interested. It was like, oh, yeah, we heard about that. And it was like, no, it wasn't a five-alarm fire, which is what I thought it deserved. Your wonderful producer, Lynn, actually forwarded me the correspondence between you and the FDA. And I was like, go, Joe, for, you know, saying like, hey, aren't you concerned about this? But, you know, let us also acknowledge that a lot of these organizations like the FDA, like the USDA, were designed to be advocacy organizations for industry, not for the consumers. So one could argue that the goal of the FDA is to help pharmaceuticals sell their drugs. The goal of the USDA is to help the food industry sell the food. And so we think of these agencies as consumer protection agencies, but one only has to watch the docuseries Painkiller about 
Purdue Pharmaceuticals to really understand what the actual role of some of these regulatory agencies are. It's like the EPA when they said, go self-regulate. Tell us if your product is causing a problem with the environment. You know, so I think that while we, you know, it's wonderful, we have an FDA. There are countries that don't have FDAs, but we can do better. And we need more advocacy for the consumers and less advocacy for the pharmaceutical companies. Dr. Chutkin, in the two minutes we have left before the break, how would you advise first patients and then your colleagues to be able to use these biologics safely when appropriate and not over-rely on them? I want to say two things, and this applies to both patients and physicians. The first is that recognize the contribution of diet and lifestyle. And I understand why physicians don't because we're not taught anything about it in medical school. I had to learn all of that over decades from the patients. And thank you to all the wonderful patients I've seen over the years who have shown me how powerful nutrition can be to treat these diseases. So what I want to say to people and to my physician colleagues is that Focus on diet and lifestyle for these autoimmune diseases. You can get very far. We have a 79% remission rate in my practice using a primarily food as medicine approach. The second thing I want to advocate is for a step up approach. Don't start at the top with the most powerful drug unless a patient absolutely needs it. Try a less aggressive drug. You never know. It might work. I I see that all the time. So I would really like to see a return to step up rather than top down. And I want to remind people that food is powerful medicine. You are listening to Dr. Robin Chutkin, a gastroenterologist on the faculty at Georgetown University Hospital. She founded the Digestive Center for Wellness, an integrative gastroenterology practice located in Washington, D.C., Her books include Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, The Bloat Cure, and The Antiviral Gut. After the break, Dr. Chuckin will describe how she helps some patients get off these drugs called biologics. You can't necessarily stop them cold turkey. In addition to being thoughtful about using them, we also need to be thoughtful about discontinuing them. Some other popular GI drugs, the proton pump inhibitors, can also be tricky to stop. If you do it suddenly without medical supervision, you could suffer severe heartburn for weeks. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm 
I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory and Focus is a unique formula made with a blend of ingredients that work together to promote attention and support long-term memory. It supports five areas of brain performance all in one capsule. More information at cocovia.com. If you're taking a medicine like omeprazole for gastroesophageal reflux disease, you might not be able to stop it suddenly. What advice does our guest offer to help people avoid rebound reflux that can make it hard to discontinue such drugs? We'll also find out about the digestive side effects of the weight loss medicine Wigovi and the diabetes drug Ozempic. Our guide to these topics is Dr. Robin Chutkin. She is a faculty member at Georgetown University Hospital and the founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness, an integrative gastroenterology practice located in Washington, D.C. Dr. Chutkin is the author of the Digestive Health Books Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, The Bloat Cure, and The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out. Dr. Chutkin, I am intrigued at the idea that one of the important things you do in your practice, in addition to sometimes prescribing these biologics for people who need them, is helping people get off them. First, tell us why, and then please tell us how. It really has become my passion Terry. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I think I was one of the largest prescribers of these drugs a couple decades ago. And now I think the pharmaceutical reps call me the terminator because now I love getting people off them. And the first thing I'll say is not everybody's a candidate to be off a biologic. There are plenty of people who come to see me and I say, look, I think your disease is too active and you're too sick right now. And I think you should stay on this drug until you're more stable, or somebody who has really active disease. And I say, you know, I don't think diet alone is going to get you where you need to be. I think you should consider a biologic for nine months, 12 months, maybe 18 months, and then come back once you're stable and let's work on getting you off it. And my simple rationale is that these drugs have very dangerous potential side effects. Not everybody's going to have a side effect, but you, you don't always know who is going to have one. And when you consider that some of these autoimmune diseases like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis affect young people, the idea of somebody at you know 18 or 19 going on a drug for the next 30 or 40 years, having cancer or serious infection hanging over their head, well, I wouldn't want that for my child. And so I do feel this strong sort of obligation to try and help people identify whether they are a candidate or not, and sometimes it's not, to get off the drug, and if they are a candidate, how to do it. So I've been doing this in my practice, sort of patient by patient. Last year, we beta tested a course called Drug-Free IBD, Remission Without Immunosuppression, and we had a huge demand for it. So it is a course that we have for the public that you can find on my website. And there is a self-guided component. There's a live component. And I have to say, I feel very proud of the work that we do. And it's not always about getting off the drug. Sometimes it's opposite. Sometimes it's saying you need the drug, but really just trying to help people sort through who is a candidate, who isn't, when should we be cautious, when should we really you know, pump the brakes on these drugs. And I'm assuming you can't just stop cold turkey. Well, there's a lot that goes into 
deciding whether you stop or not. Some of them you can, some of them you need to taper, but it's more about deciding whether you should. So there is an element, there's absolutely an art to knowing which ones to stop cold turkey, which ones to taper. But beyond that, it's really looking at the patient as a whole, looking at what the clinical background is, what has the history of their illness been, what is their current status of disease, is it mild, is it moderate, is it severe, what has worked in the past, what hasn't, what is their commitment to changing their diet and lifestyle. So it's really taking all of that and integrating it and then making a decision together. You with know, the Dr. Chutkin, this kind of reminds me of another category of drugs that your colleagues love called proton pump inhibitors. Now, we've talked in the past about drugs like Nexium and Prilosec and uh, Prevacid. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. And I think in the beginning, people thought, oh, man, these drugs are so wonderful. They take away heartburn. They cure ulcers overnight. And you can stop any time, no problem. And then we learned, oops, there, there can be a rebound, and you have to be very thoughtful about how you use these drugs and how you discontinue them. Well, what's more, when they were first introduced, we thought, oh, these drugs are wonderful. They don't really have any side effects. We have now discovered over the years that especially if you're using it long term, there are some very troublesome side effects. You are absolutely right, Terry. But I think what has been the biggest revelation is not just how blocking stomach acid interferes with digestion. You don't necessarily have to be a gastroenterologist to put two and two together there and say, okay, well, stomach acid is probably there for a reason, right? It's an integral part of digestion. So if you block stomach acid, you're not going to digest your food as well. You're probably not going to absorb the nutrients as well. You may run into some problems. But what has been absolutely astounding is to see the ripple effect into the rest of the body and how blocking stomach acid for extended periods of time for several weeks, months, years in some patients can lead to bone disease, heart disease, kidney disease, dementia, which is now what we are seeing. There is a study from University of Minnesota published again this summer, August, hot off the press. This study with over 5,000 people suggests that extended use, which they described as beyond four years of these proton pump inhibitors. So we're not talking about antacids. We're not talking about H2 blockers. We're talking about proton pump inhibitors may increase dementia risk. And when we say increase, well, what does that mean? 33% higher risk when the PPI use was stretched beyond four years. So again, this ripple effect, and there's so many things that happen as a result of using these drugs. So we talked about not having stomach acid, not being able to digest food. Well, it's not just the digestion, it's the absorption of nutrients, particularly the absorption of, of fat-soluble vitamins, the absorption of B12, what that means for our brain, because we know B12 is an important micronutrient in terms of neurological outcome. We know that when you use PPIs for a long time and you develop kidney disease or you develop heart disease, that those two things chronically are both associated with an increased risk of dementia. So it really is a Pandora's 
box. But these studies, again, so important. And this was a study from the U.S., University of Minnesota, and it was actually an atherosclerosis study where they pulled this data out of a larger study where they were looking at atherosclerosis. And so these observational studies, while they don't necessarily 100% prove causation, they really create these absolutely critical connections between drug use, particularly longer drug use, and some of these disease states that we're seeing. And, you know, you think of dementia, it's an epidemic of dementia. Why are we seeing so much dementia? Well, we have to think it must be in some way related to the fact that we're so over-medicated. What fascinates me is that the human body is very complicated. It's such a complex living organism. There's so many moving pieces to it. And we think, well, we can just do one thing. We can just inhibit tissue necrosis factor and everything's going to be great. We can just suppress stomach acid, nothing to worry about. But hello, it's a system. You change one thing, everything else shifts in response. And so that's what we're sort of learning with these biologics and also with the proton pump inhibitors. You push on the balloon and something else changes. I would like to switch gears just a bit and talk about the hottest drugs in the world right now. They're, they're changing the Danish economy, and that is the, the medications that are being used as weight loss drugs. They also are prescribed for diabetes, and everybody has heard about Ozempic and Wegovy, semaglutide, and I'm just curious about your perspective on these incredibly expensive and popular drugs, especially with regard to a new side effect that we have just learned about, gastroparesis. So give us your overview, if you would, briefly, about these medications that are called GLP-1 agonists. Absolutely. Ozempic and Wegovy, as you said, used to treat diabetes and obesity, respectively. And as we discussed with biologics, these drugs can be not just life-altering, but life-saving for people who are struggling with refractory diabetes with severe obesity. But like every other drug, including prenatal vitamins, they come with side effects. And unfortunately, these come with much more severe side effects than what we would see with a prenatal vitamin, which if it has iron in it may cause some constipation, but it's certainly not going to paralyze your stomach. So one of the side effects we see is what you refer to as gastro, meaning stomach, paresis, meaning paralysis. Now, the stomach isn't really paralyzed, but it is slowed down in terms of its contractility. And we have known about the side effect for as long as we've known about GLP-1 receptor agonist drugs, which has been a long time. And that's because GLP-1 has a couple major roles in the body. Glucose control is one of them. It promotes insulin release. It helps reduce blood sugar. So that's why it's so helpful for diabetes. And the other is that it influences the response of the digestive tract to a meal. It makes you feel fuller, and that's why it's helpful for weight loss. So it wouldn't be surprising then to realize that these drugs work like a brake system in the stomach where they're going to slow down the rate at which a stomach would normally empty food into the rest of the small intestine. 
And so nausea is a common side effect. And this slow down stomach condition is a form of gastroparesis, slowing down. And, um, you know, we have other drugs that can cause similar effects in the GI tract. So narcotics, for example, opioid-induced constipation is when people are on narcotics and they're constipated. But we also see dysmotility and slowing down of the stomach with people who are on narcotics and they can be nauseated and have vomiting and lose weight, et cetera, because of similar side effects. So these are not the only drugs that do this, but these drugs are being used so widely. And one of the things that's really worrisome and troubling to me as a physician is they're being used in people who don't need them. They're being marketed. Well, I shouldn't say they're being marketed because I don't think this is from the pharmaceutical company, but they are being used. People who have minimal weight, if any, to lose are using them. And you, when you think about it, a drug that can create a disease state, gastroparesis is a disease state that we see with diabetes and with other people with Parkinson's, people where there is nerve damage to the stomach, the vagus nerve that helps to control the stomach emptying. So taking a drug to create a pathological condition is never a good idea unless you really don't have any other choice. So, I, you know, for people out there listening, believe me, this is not a magic wand. And while we think that gastroparesis in most people is going to be reversible with stopping the medication, we don't really have long-term experience with this to know that it is always going to be reversible. Dr. Chuckin, just how much do these drugs or could these drugs slow the stomach emptying well, down? Even before that, how long does it take for your stomach to move food, let's say lunch, into your small intestine? Normally. Somewhere around 90 minutes is about the half time. And so when we do a gastric emptying study, a test to, it's a pretty simple test that radiologists do. They give you some radio labeled, usually oatmeal or eggs or liver, or tofu, depending on your dietary um, preference. And they give you that to eat. And then, and it's radio labeled. So it's sort of like one of those tags when you walk through the, the anti-theft devices and then you walk through the department store door and it will go off if if it detects that radio frequency. Well, so the food is labeled like that and then they scan you and they see how long it takes for your stomach to completely empty. And so usually we do to do a full gastric emptying test, we'll do a full three hours. Although by 90 minutes we know that a pretty significant percentage should have emptied. But to really get all the information we see, okay, in three hours, everything should be out. And we determine the degree of gastroparesis by the percent of food that's still in the stomach. So I'll get a report and it will say, okay, at three hours, this patient still had, you know, 40% of the food in the stomach. So we can really get a number. And how long does the GLP-1 agonist keep the food in the stomach? Because I know that anesthesiologists are now worried about aspiration during surgery if patients are taking one of these drugs. Yeah, that is a, a real risk, but it depends a lot on the dose. It's a dose-dependent reaction. So usually early on, you start at a lower dose, and then they'll increase the dose and maximize it. And as you get closer to the optimal dose, is typically, and the optimal dose is going to vary from person to person, but that is typically where you will see uh, this effect on the stomach emptying is at the higher dose. And, you know, it's going to depend on the person's 
just individual physiology too. And this makes it tricky for anesthesiologists. The aspiration risk, meaning you have something in your stomach and during anesthesia where you're not able to protect your airway, you're not able to cough and choke to sort of spit something up. Things can, particularly when we put that scope down into the stomach or when the surgeon inserts different instruments, we often are putting air in to inflate these organs. And so now you're taking a stomach that is full of food that hasn't emptied that we are unaware of, and you're putting more air in. And it's conceivable that these these uh, the contents of the stomach could travel up through the esophagus and go down into the airway. And that usually results in something called aspiration pneumonia, which is sort of a chemical pneumonia created as a result of the reaction to the food in the lungs where it's clearly not supposed to be. And so there are people who are already at risk for aspiration. If you're diabetic, if you are overweight or obese, if you are on a drug, a narcotic or some other drug that slows down emptying of the GI tract, if you are sedentary. So there are already so many things that the anesthesiologist has to take into consideration. And now on top of it, are you on one of these drugs that might slow things down even more? Dr. Chuckin, we've been talking about all of these important biological systems, uh, whether it's our immune system and our you know, TNF blockers and biologic drugs to treat psoriasis and inflammatory bowel disorder and skin conditions, and whether it's drugs for stomach acid uh, or whether it's diabetes and weight loss. All of these drugs have seemed miraculous and revolutionary, and of course, they're all pretty expensive, and they affect the entire system. Like, like I say, you push on the balloon one place, and it's going to bulge someplace else. How do, we, how do we put all of this into perspective, taking into account your practice of diet, lifestyle, and so many other factors? How do we use these drugs wisely? keeping in mind that the, the human body is incredibly complicated. We have to think deeply about why. Why are we suffering from this disease in the first place? If we think about the GI tract and we think about, for example, blood loss from the GI tract, the commonest cause if somebody is having acute gastrointestinal bleeding is because they're taking a drug like a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug that is eroding the lining, causing an ulcer, et cetera, causing you to bleed. It's not always a pharmaceutical. It's not always something in the medicine cabinet, but is it something that you were doing? So I always want people to start with why. Is it something I'm eating? Is it a drug I'm taking? Is it a habit I have? You know, you think about smoking and lung cancer. That took us decades to make that connection. It seems so simple now. So that is always an important place to start because so often the answer is not a pill. The answer is to stop doing what it is that we're doing that's causing the problem. Now, when the answer is a pill, again, judicious use of these drugs is always a goal. And that doesn't apply just to the big gun drugs like the GLP, receptor agonists or the biologics, it applies to an aspirin. Aspirin can kill. Aspirin can cause GI bleeding in the wrong part of the gut over a large vessel like the gastroduodenal artery, and you end up with fatal GI bleeding. So 
every single time you are considering a pharmaceutical, be that a supplement, an over-the-counter medication, or a prescription drug, I want people to really consider, is this drug absolutely necessary? Is there a way to feel better without it? And what is the risk-benefit ratio? And we just need to be more consistent about doing that. And our physicians need to be better about doing it too. But we as consumers need to ask those questions and we need to ask them of the prescribers to say, hey, doc, I know you think this is going to be really helpful, but is it absolutely necessary? What would happen if I didn't take it? Would this condition go away? Would I just be sick a little bit longer? So we really need to ask those probing questions of ourselves and of our healthcare practitioners. Well, our time is up. But Dr. Chuckin, we have covered a lot of territory and we are so grateful for your expertise and we can't wait to talk to you again about a lot of other factors. Thank you so much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. You are so welcome. I love being a guest on your show. You are both doing such important work. You're the most amazing hosts. And thank you so much for having me on again. You've been listening to Dr. Robin Chutkin a board-certified gastroenterologist on the faculty at Georgetown University Hospital. She's the founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness, an integrative gastroenterology practice located in Washington, D.C. Her books include Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, The Bloat Cure, and The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wodarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio WUNC with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Cardio Health is offered in both convenient capsule and powder formats, with each serving containing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols to support heart health. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,358. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. Have you taken one of these biologics to treat a serious condition? What was your experience? Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter and get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you also have regular access to information about our weekly podcast, so you can find out ahead. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. 
Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.